Good evening. Good evening. Everyone, thank you for coming. We'll continue with Sri Jiva Goswami's Krishna Sandarbha. We're at the beginning of the Krishna Sandarbha where Sri Jiva Goswami is uh, presenting preliminarily as an introduction to the core of his text on Bhagavan Sri Krishna. Systematically, uh, the verses from the third chapter of the first canto uh, wherein the various manifestations of the Lord are delineated starting with the Purusha avatars and then uh, going to the Leela avatars and the manifestation of the Lord as Brahman is also mentioned uh, in this third chapter, uh, specifically in relationship to uh, that revelation of spirituality that's available uh, to the jiva by recognizing his true spiritual position. So that self-introspection uh, of our nature, apart from the influence of the material modes of material nature and the material atmosphere uh, affords one an opportunity to recognize their true spiritual being. And that can be accomplished uh, to a great extent, not fully, but to a great extent just through uh, self evaluation, evaluation of our true self, evaluation of our true being separate from outside influence. So that's the way that Brahman is mentioned in the third chapter as a self-awareness. So up through the level of Brahman, uh, realization one can attain a kind of liberation and be referred to as a Jivan Mukta. Uh, and examples are there in the Bhagavatam of, of such an attainment, specifically in the case of the speaker of the Bhagavatam himself, uh, Sukadev Goswami. He was situated in Brahman realization, and he mentions this himself uh, in the text. And then he was influenced by uh, the Lord's. Um, internal potency, his rup shakti, and then he, he, he saw it a true, um, something truly relishable over and above just realizing that he was spiritual in nature. So when we talk about realization, Brahman, beyond Brahman realization, beyond the realization of a Brahmavadi, then there is the requisite uh, ingress of spiritual potency required outside of ourself. So we can look inward, and that will take us so far in, in realizing the nature of, of being and the nature of ourself, but 
there's more to be had. And that more comes about by the ingress of, of the Lord Swarup Shakti. So therefore the verse, Vedanti Tat Tat Vavidas, Tat Vamyas Gyanamadvayam, Brahmeti Paramatmeti, Bhagavaniti Sabjate. So this Paramatma realization and Bhagavan realization uh, does require the ingress of, of uh, the Sarup Shakti that comes in the form of help. We get some help from outside of ourselves. Uh, we get proper knowledge, some Bandagyan, and proper uh, introduction into some practice, and then that affords us the opportunity for some attainment, spiritual attainment, and that spiritual attainment comes to us uh, according to the the ingress of the Lord Swarup Shakti that we're afforded. So what we see here in this third chapter is in the, in the presentation of the Purush avatars and the Leela avatars taking us up to the point of the the manifestation of Krishna himself when he comes into the material world. What we see specifically in re regards to these different avatars is, is a perfect manifestation of the various universal administrative potencies of the Lord. Basically, his ingress into his creation. In other words, we're not just put out here and here, here's a world and make the best of it. No, it's a perfectly managed world. It's perfectly organized. It's, it's perfectly evolved and that perfection is carried into the material universe through these various avatars. First through the manifestation, the Purusha avatars, and then through the evolution of, our, of the situation for the various jivas. So we have a perfect administration of the universe and that kind of plays out. We see here in the Leela avatars that some of these Leela avatars are jivas just like ourselves who have been infused with various potencies of the Lord. So if you could imagine, well, we can imagine we have a culture and in our culture, especially nowadays, we have the culture of superheroes. That's the, the, the mood of the day in order to capture the uh, intellect for enjoyment of the public is, you know, all these empowered beings. 
So we have our uh, whatever they are. Right, the Hulk, Thor, you know, and then they all get together and they form a team. And so, yeah. The Avengers. Yes, there you go. The Avengers and. uh, uh, So, this idea of empowerment's not unknown to us, although foreign to probably the majority of us personally. Can you imagine being a Superman all of a all of a sudden one day waking up and being able to fly in the sky and you know leap mountains or bend metal or you know? Uh, so these empowerments are there. The Lord can empower jivas with various shaktis, and we see in these lila avatars these empowerments coming. Uh, just for a display within the material world. And sometimes the empowerment is to such an extent that even though they're jivatma, even though they're um, just a, a spiritual spark, the Lord's empowerment of the jiva is to such an extent that they become representative of the Lord himself. So Anarda is referred to as a Leela avatar. His empowerment is, is he, he's empowered with bhakti. And he's empowered to such an extent that he's considered himself an incarnation of God. An avatar descending, powered. Empowered. The Kumars, again, empowered with knowledge, the ability to know and understand everything perfectly. It's quite an empowerment that they have. Or an empowerment, I mean, just to think of a Narda, a Narda who can be insulted by demigods or the sons of a demigod. And even in in being insulted, I mean, imagine, imagine playing naked with the opposite sex in front of your guru. Imagine being caught, and you know, just I mean, try. This is what we're talking about: Nalakuvar and Manigriva. I mean, Nard is the spiritual master of everyone especially people that are the demigods, people who should know how to conduct themselves. And they're just playing with the opposite sex in a pond naked. And Narda walks by and they, they don't even give him the time of day. No obeisances. They don't even have the good sense to cover their bodies. At least the women that they were enjoying with that covered their bodies, but these two demigods... They didn't even have the sense they were so intoxicated. Imagine such an empowerment that even in an insult, a Narda, who's all about good, who's all about spreading bhakti, he curses them to the most glorious of positions. Now one would say, well, from a material point of view, that's that's. That's a curse. 
because they were cursed to become trees. If you want to stand naked, well, trees stand naked. We don't see much on a tree. And um, so they're cursed, but they're cursed in a very special way. So that much empowerment is there in a jiva to be able to curse and the end result of your curse is the attainment of prem bhakti. No effort on your part. All you were out doing one day was trying to have a good time. And Narada gives you prem bhakti. You get to live in Vraj for year upon year and when Krishna appears, you get to observe all the Leela. So much so that you later become a bard and you go to Vraj and you tell the Vrajbasis who are in Galoka about what Krishna does when he plays on earth. So, what kind of a benediction that is, that, and what kind. So, we're not talking about just a little bit of power here. We're talking about the Lord giving immense energy. So, when we hear these Leela avatars who fall into the Avesh Saktavish, Avesh or Saktavish, they're referred to, uh, category, because we were talking about these different categories of expansions of the Lord. The Lord expands in different ways. Swamsa is the Lord himself, and then um, I forget the other two off the top of my head, but I mean the other one, uh, and then the subcategories, and then we have you know, the Avesh, the, the, just the energy of the Lord coming into someone. Uh, Tad Ekatma Rupa. So the Tad Ekatma Rupa doesn't have the same, same form as the Lord. Power, potency is less. And those are either equal potency with the Lord or a little bit less potency. The form is not the same. So continuing tonight with the 10th Anucheta, uh, the 5th Avatars explain Kapiladev. Jiva Goswami writes here, the fit, uh, begins this Anucheta first by quoting from the 3rd chapter, the 10th verse. In the 5th Avatar, he appeared as the sage known as Kapila, the master of all perfected beings. Siddhas, who instructed Asuri in the Sankhya philosophy that precisely determines the nature of the evolutionary principles, tattvas, a doctrine that had been lost due to the influence of time. Now, Prabhupada writes in his commentary on this verse, his definition of Sankhya is as follows that which explains very lucidly by analysis of the material elements. Now we also know that Kapiladev 
spoke this same knowledge to his mother. Uh, in addition to Asuri, Asuri is a great sage. Uh, and if you if you just do a search for Asuri, you'll see his name, but really details details of exactly what he did other than show up at different sage events and dis discourses and be, be in the listing of people who are managing the universe. Uh, no uh, specific detail is given in the Bhagavat Purana. But he is a Brahmana named Asuri. And Jiva Goswami, that's the only comment he makes in the Anacheda. The word Asuraye means that he spoke it to the Brahmana named Asuri. So the whole description of Kapila Davis is given in the Bhagavad as are most of these Leela avatars that are mentioned by um, Sutta Goswami. They're mentioned again by Sukadev Goswami in his Bhagavat present, presentation to Maharaj Parikshit. So Kapila Dev specifically there in the third canto, the 23rd through 33rd chapter. So it's a, a large section of text. And the text there is large because there's some very helpful information given in his instructions. And that information is details that help us detach ourselves from the Lord's external energy. The Sankhya philosophy, by understanding the evolution of the elements the evolution of the senses, the distinction between the senses and the sense objects and, and the mind, intelligence, and false ego, being able to see all those as distinct from our being, being able to see all of those as inert matter, and being able to, to see that in the context of our own existence is is quite helpful and to some extent somewhat difficult for us because especially when it comes to the mind we very much associate with our mind I mean we think we're our mind we think our, we were our intellect and we certainly know how to use our false ego to grab onto what is completely not of our true spiritual nature. So Sankhya helps us understanding the, the elemental evolution of what is not the spirit soul, that the spirit soul itself does not change in any way, although the elements of the material energy that the soul interacts with uh, have a very a very strong hold. I mean, we're very much restrained by our conception of self. I think I'm this body. I think I'm this mind. I think I'm this intellect. And 
if we only understood how restrictive it is. So understanding it helps us to see how restricted it is. And seeing the example put forth in Shastra of how free you can become even in the confines of material existence. Imagine gaining mastery over those elements that are so restrictive. Imagine dedicating yourself to attaining complete freedom within the material environment. The freedom to become smaller than the smallest, greater than the greatest, to control other people's thoughts, to be able to acquire anything without going anywhere. So these yogic cities, they're available to the jiva. So the perfect yogi not only understands Sankhya and the elemental evolution and the constituents of his body, but he controls his body and his mind and his intellect and his false ego to such an extent that he becomes a complete controller of those elements. It's, it's quite an amazing feat. Then you can see even, the, even someone who has no interest in spirituality can become such a controlling yoga. And a five-year-old boy can become such a controlling yogi to where those that manage the universe are, are screaming out, help us, Brahma, you know. We, some, somebody needs to step in here. Here's a Dhruva Maharaj, and he's performing austerities and becoming such a master of the material elements that we're starving. He's controlling, he's controlling so much to such an extent. Or a Harandikasipu. The whole universe seems like it's on fire because of, uh, you know, the extent of his austerities, his yoga practice. So, Kapila Dev. So, the word Siddha here refers to a person permanently established in immediate realization of the self. That was Kapila. He was a Siddha. Uh, Sankhya teaches discernment between the material body, prakriti, and the conscious self, purusha. This distinction forms the basis of all spirituality. Sankhya is said to be the oldest school of philosophy. One of its unique contributions to philosophy in general is its theory of the three gunas that constitute primordial nature. Also, as you've heard, there's also a traditional school of Sankhya. And interestingly enough, that philosophy of the traditional school, not the theistic school of Kapila, 
was also taught by another Kapila. So there's the traditional Sankhya, which has nothing to do with spiritual life. It's just these, this is material elements and this is the soul, but nothing to do with with gaining release and and attaining moksha. The Sankhya too is propagated by another Kapila who is different from the Kapila of the Bhagavad. The Kapila of classic Sankhya is said to be an incarnation of Agni. He is the author of Sankhya Sutras. The sixth avatar, Dattatreya, this is the 11th Anucheda. In the sixth avatar, he appeared as the son of the sage Atri on the entreaty of his wife Anasuya. He instructed Alanka, Prahlad, and others in the metaphysics of the self. Jiva Goswami writes here in his Anucheda, according to the version of the fourth canto of the Bhagavat, it is Atri who openly petitioned the Lord with the sole intent of obtaining a son similar to him. From the above verse, however, it appears that at, the, at some time Anasuya had also requested a boon from Srimad Isvara himself to appear directly as her son. On account of this, an account of this is mentioned in the Pativrata episode of the Brahmananda Purana. Then Jiva quotes a verse, Anasuya, bowing down to the devas Brahma, Shiva, and Keshava, addressed them as follows, If you are pleased with me and consider me worthy to receive a boon, then may all of you kindly, kind, be kindly disposed and appear as my sons. So there's a verse explaining this advent and the fulfillment of these desires, both on the part of the husband and the wife, from the fourth canto, fourth chapter, chapter, Anasuya, the wife of Atri Muni, gave birth to three very famous sons, Soma, Dattatreya, and Dorvas, who were partial representations of Lord Vishnu, Lord Shiva, and Lord Brahma. Soma was a partial representation of Lord Brahma, Dattatreya was a partial representation of Lord Vishnu, and Dorvas was a partial representation of Lord Shiva. So this all is explained as differently in these two presentations, one being that the petition was made by the husband and the other being the petition was made uh, by the wife. The Bhagavatam stresses that the wife is the one that petitioned the Lord. If we look carefully to the presentation of the uh, Srimad Bhagavatam, we find the following. In the seventh to ninth chapters of the eleventh canto, Sri Krishna relates the instructions of an unnamed Avadut to Yadu Maharaj. Vamsidhar and other commentators identify the Avadut as Dattatreya on the authority of verse 274, which states that kings such as Yadu and Haihaya attained yogic perfection by the grace of Dattatreya. So by putting these, looking at that verse, it can be inferred that 
eleventh uh, canto is speaking of Dattatreya uh, being the instructor. Anucheta twelve, moving through the Leela avatars. The seventh avatar, Yajna. Jiva begins by again quoting from the third chapter. Thereafter, in the seventh avatar, the Purusha appeared as Yajna from Akuti, the wife of Ruchi, assisted by the host of Devas headed by Yama, who were his sons. He presided over the Manvantara of Swayambhuva Manu. Jiva just writes, the meaning of the second line of the verse is that Yajna himself took the office of Indra during that period. So we're talking about the first Manu, Swayambhuva Manu. So during the reigns of the, of the Manus, 14 Manus in a day of Brahma, each Manu residing over the universal manifestation for what's referred to as a Manvantara. Manvantara is 71 cycles of the four Yugas. So Swayambhuva is the first Manu. In the commentary here it says, Indra is the name of the post of the king of Hedvan. Sometimes Bhagavan himself assumes this post, as in the case of Yajna, described here. Yama and the host of Devas were the sons of Yajna, although Yajna was the son of Akuti and Ruchi. He was adopted by his maternal grandfather, Swayambhuva Manu, that is described in the first chapter of the fourth canto. Anucheta 13, the eighth avatar, Rishabdev. The verse from the third chapter reads, In the eighth avatar, the Purusha appeared as Urukrama, he who performs extraordinary deeds, from Meru Devi, the wife of King Nabi. He revealed the path of the highly self-realized, which is revered by people belonging to all stages of life. The name Urukrama here refers to Rishab, who appeared as the eighth avatar. So Rishab Dave, we know from the Bhagavatam, was a great avadut. He walked away from his kingly affairs and just became indifferent to the world. Entirely indifferent. His indifference extended to his material body. So that's that's an avadut. He doesn't care at all for his for anything related to material existence. Uh, if somebody feeds him, he'll eat. If somebody doesn't feed him, he won't eat. He'll fast. Uh, so it's quite a life, that of a Yavadu, completely detached. Uh, also sometimes referred to as a Paramahansa. Uh, Sridhar Swami mentions here in the commentary, glosses Vartva Diranam, the path of the highly self-realized, as 
the final ashram, the path of supreme wisdom, Paramahamsa, which is revered by all other ashrams. In this stage, Rishabhdev wandered over the earth while remaining utterly absorbed in the self, without any concern for his bodily requirements. His story is narrated in the third to fifth chapters of the fifth canto. The term avadu refers to a class of spiritualists who are so highly elevated that they are unable to care even for their own bodily needs. They are without concern for conventional morality or social norms. Wanting to proceed to the core of this Krishna Sandarbha, we haven't gone and, and read extensively the various avatars as they're presented in the Bhagavatam and because if we were to do that, each avatar would require at least a class or more to go into their pastimes, how they conducted themselves, what their unique contribution to humanity was, uh, specifically uh, the spiritual teachings that they gave. But in general, if, we, if you're to do that, which you should do, reading the Bhagavatam repeatedly as you all do, um, you'll come away with in understanding these Leela avatars that the universe is well looked after and cared for. We may divorce ourselves from our true nature, our spiritual nature, our spiritual life, our spiritual uh, well-being, we may be neglectful of that individually, but that is not the nature of the world we're living in. The nature of the world is nurturing of spiritual culture, is nurturing of spiritual life and spiritual advancement. And it shows itself again and again through the advent of the various avatar descents of the Lord. He mentions this in the Bhagavad Gita, yada yada hi dharma sya. So he comes, he comes according to the culture. So we see these these avatars, they're performing different, they're presenting themselves, it's God presenting himself in human society in the culture of that day and that time in a way that he'll most, be most beneficial to humanity at that time. So sometimes, like you have a Kapila Dave coming at a time where the best way to present that culture with spiritual knowledge is to give them knowledge which allows them to discriminate the difference between matter and spirit by studying the evolution of the elements that constitute the material cosmos. So Kapila comes and his contribution seems, well, he just came and he gave a material science, Sankhya philosophy. No, he gave it that science in such a way that it would lead to material detachment. 
And you have a Rishav Dave giving an example in human society, which seems what benefit is human society going to have from seeing someone just being so detached from materiality that he acts like a crazy person? How is that going to benefit? But it is beneficial to see someone who has the world at his feet, a king who has the world at his feet, and even though he has everything going for him, materially, he finds no pleasure in that, and he walks away from it to such an extent that he, be, he takes the highest level of spirituality available, the Paramahansa stage, the Avadut stage, which is complete and absolute detachment and complete absorption in the pursuit of, of spiritual revelation. So we could go to the Leela as presented in the Bhagavatam of all these individual Leela avatars and study carefully and we'll find all of them make great contributions, amazing contributions to humanity at large. And this is just a subset, a sampling of all the descents of the Lord into a material universe. It's not like we look to the Bhagavad and we say, well, look, there's this many avatars and that's it. No. This is, we should see the Bhagavad Purana as giving us simply a sampling of the Lord's unlimited descents. He descends not only again and again into various cultures, a few of which are highlighted in the Bhagavad Purana, but he descends into all the species of life, other species, for their benefit. How that happens, it's not really completely outlined here, but it's mentioned. The great commentators mention that this is there, that the Lord comes and descends into every species of life. So we may not understand how and the significance, but it is significant, and it, it just goes to highlight the fact that The Lord is totally invested in the well-being of all his parts and parcels, specifically his devotees, as Jiva Goswami's already highlighted at the end of his Paramatma Sandarbha. The main, the main driving element for the Lord even manifesting the universe again and again is to nourish the spiritual growth of his devotees. We'll finish up with Baharaj Pritu, Anacheta 14, beginning with the verse from the Bhagavatam Brahmanas in the ninth avatar. On the request of the sages, he, the Purusha, accepted the form of a king, Pritu, and milked the earth to make it yield food and medicinal plants. Due to such actions, 
this avatar was most appealing. Jiva Goswami extends that a little bit. Parthivam Vapu means the body of a king in the form of Pritu. The word Dugda here should probably be Adugda, meaning milked. Commentary Pritu was born from the arms of the dead body of his father, Venu, who was killed by the sages because of his atheistic behavior. This is what happens in a civilized culture when the head man becomes deranged. So Venu was selected to be king because the prior king, he vacated his post. He had a son and his son, well, first when he vacated his post without, a, without somebody running the administration of human society, things started to go downhill fast. Without any law and order, there's, there's simply chaos. So immediately the rogues and the thugs and the thieves began to just run amok. So the son of the king, although he wasn't of good character, he at least was forceful. This, even his, in his childhood, he was a forceful personality who if he, most of us would play with our friends, but he would play with his friends, but he would always win and he would win sometimes at the death of the other children. So that's how powerful Venu was. So they said, well, what do they say? A blind uncle is better than no uncle at all, something like that. The Brahmins installed Venu as the king of the world. So Venu got a little full of himself and <laughs> he immediately wanted to do away with the Brahminical class, which is the only class that could, that could exert any control over him. It would be something like a, a president completely ignoring uh, Congress or the judiciary and just running amok and not having a balance in government. That could be like similar situation. So Venu wanted to do away with the the Brahminical class and they had some say in the administration. So he just said, well, we'll just do away with them and then I'll be, be able to run free and do whatever I want entirely. Yeah, they didn't go with that and they... Uh, uh, they they removed him from office. They killed him. His mother preserved his body in a herb bath. Different herbs were put there to keep to keep the body in. So the Brahmins they didn't have anybody to. There was nobody else in the in the succession. And the royal there was nobody in the royal order left to take over the administration. So they said, well, let's let's use our powers and produce another leader. 
and they produced a leader from the body of Venu with their Brahminical powers. So they they did their thing, and I think they cast off some demoniac forces that he had in him, and then there was some some true kingly uh, character in some of the portions of his body, and from that, uh, Pritu was born from the body, the dead body of Venu, and his wife was also born from that same body. Is that right, Archie? Pritu's wife, Archie, was churned out of that same body. And here it mentions that Pritu milked the earth to supply the people uh, with their needs. As a result, Pritu is referred to as the most appealing. His story is narrated in chapters 15 through 23 of the fourth canto. So we will continue speaking of Matsyadev in our next discussion. Anocheta 15. Thank you so much for your association.